Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Tiffany Hensley McBain. Today's episode features content from an educational program titled Cases and Controversies in HIV, A Global Perspective. This podcast features a patient case discussion with Dr. Jose Arribas from Hospital La Paz, Itipaz in Madrid, Spain, Dr. Andrew Carr from the University of New South Wales and St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, Australia, and Dr. Lenora Saxinger from the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. For more information on Dr. Arribas, Dr. Carr, and Dr. Saxinger, and for a link to the full online educational program, including downloadable slides specific to today's discussion, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear our expert faculty discuss art, safety, and management in a woman who wishes to conceive. Okay, our next case will be a discussion of antiretroviral therapy in women of childbearing potential. So this is a 24-year-old student and nurse. Uh, she was diagnosed with HIV in 2017 when she presented with herpes zoster and quite appropriately was tested for HIV. She had been initially started, as many people were around then, on an efavirenz-based combination regimen. She was switched to dolutegravir and 3TC TDF in January 2020 because of difficulties concentrating. Um, this was affecting her studies. She was happy with that switch. Now, she and her partner are keen to try to conceive. Her partner is HIV negative. Her laboratory values show that she's got a CD4 count of 865, an undetectable viral load, uh, genotype, no resistance, uh, HLA, B5701 negative, and quite slender with a BMI of 20. All the other lab work is fine. So we have a couple who'd like to try to conceive. Um, she has fully controlled HIV. Her partner is HIV negative. This is a really interesting one. And I actually have asked colleagues this type of question before and have got quite a variety of answers. Do you think her partner should go on PrEP? I don't know who to tag first. So maybe I'll just throw it out and see who wants to jump in first. Well, I think the key word is should, right? So what's the evidence that PrEP is required? So the randomized uh, couples data suggests that it's not required. Uh, having said that, there are plenty of anxious patients there who want to be absolutely sure. Uh, and if I've got a cheap, readily accessible and quite safe intervention to give them a bit of peace of mind, I, I don't object. Okay. My, you know, EU equals U, uh, this lady has been undetectable for many, many years. Um, and um, I think it's the data that we have that the risk for the partner is very low. Although it will be different if the partner asks for PrEP. If the partner asks for PrEP, there might be other issues going on. It might not be a monogamous relationship. Um, that of, uh, that sometimes happen. So I will, you know, have my, my, I will carefully listen how the conversation goes because if the partner asks for prep, you know, these are delicate situations. But you know, as Andrew said, the partner asks for prep. There might be other reasons why he he wants to have prep. But in general, if it's a monogamous relationship and uh, she's been suppressed uh, so long. 
I don't need the I don't see the need to start the partner on prep. You know, it's interesting because I I think the last time I had this scenario in clinic, um, I didn't feel that it was necessary, and they weren't necessarily keen for the partner who is well to take medication. But I did think there was some utility in minimizing unnecessary exposure because they were in the habit of using barrier protection anyway. So we had a nitty gritty discussion about her cycles and I printed off an ovulation calendar for her and said, these are the days when you guys should consider having unprotected sex and otherwise continue having protected sex. And actually they got pregnant in like two months, which was pretty good. I've also had patients choose to use a syringe type insemination rather than having unprotected sex, which also works. So have sex with protection and then uh, take the semen out of the condom with the syringe. And um, that has also been successful. So it depends on how keen they are on medication versus non-medication. But I think it's interesting to just make sure people realize there's non-medication based options for that scenario as well. So the next one has to do with her treatment. How would you counsel her? Well, we talk about opening cans of worms. Um, how would you counsel her on the pros and cons of continuing her dolutegravir? Given the weird status of things people can look up and guidelines they can see. <laughs> right. I think you in your presentation, you, you discuss all the ups and downs with the Sapamo study. Uh, we got very scared at the beginning with the rate that we they saw that we call uh, our female patients to that wanted to become pregnant and we switch away from dolutegravir. Now the last estimate is an absolute risk that is extremely small. It's no longer statistically significantly different and that comes from a country that if I'm correct don't, don't use folate uh, routinely in during the pregnancy. So I will have a conversation again with the, with the couple and with the lady. Is numerically still higher, um, and we have also always this conundrum that the other regimens uh, that we might recommend that are not dolutegravir do not have the wealth of data that dolutegravir has. So it's going from something that you precisely know the risk to going to other regimens that you you basically know that there has not been an association, but probably because of the lack of power. So uh, if she's on this regimen is tolerating it, then it's, I will maybe more inclined to maintain the regimen actually. Yeah, I suppose the only thing I could add to that is because it's so cheap and safe, I would measure her folate levels and encourage her to take folate supplementation, right? Because I think that we know that everyone should be taking folate, but I don't think all pregnant women know that they should be taking folate. I think at the moment there's, you know, she's on a regimen and she's stable. I would probably in real life be inclined to leave her on that regimen. And rather than measuring her folate, because it costs a lot and the lab yells at me, I would probably just tell her to take five milligrams of folate a day in addition to her, um, you know, maternal vitamin supplementation because they don't have enough folate. And I would probably feel pretty comfortable counseling her because the number needed to harm was like 500 in a place that, as you point out, um, there's a large confounder in terms of the folate and nutritional status of the population they were looking at. Um, so I think that we've already decided that we're not going to necessarily do any fancy first trimester switching. That seems like we had a fair amount of uh, concordance on that. 
Great. Thank you very much, Dr. Arribas, Dr. Carr, and Dr. Saxinger. And thanks to listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full educational program, Cases and Controversies in HIV, A Global Perspective, on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thanks. Thanks.